All right, we are continuing our series in Revelation that actually ends today. You might think, man, that was short. It was. But Revelation can be summed up in a fairly brief, brief description, and that's with the title in and of itself, Revelation. In fact, if you read the name Revelation, you actually, to be actually accurate with the way it's written in the book of Revelation, you should say it like this, Revelation! It should shock you. It should wake you up. And if you were taking a nap, I am not sorry about that. Wake up because that's what God calls us to, to listen to his word. He calls us to respond to his word. He calls us to interact with society and what's going on around us because we do have a hope in something more. We do have a hope in something more that's coming, not something that's right here that's now necessarily. In fact, you can be discouraged by what's going on, but your hope and your faith in Jesus Christ, your belief in him coming back, will give you joy and at least give you confidence to walk faithfully in what he's called you to do. And I think Revelation calls us to that. It reminds us of that, that there are trials and tribulations that are coming that could be worse. Without any doubt, you can read Revelation and realize that. But there is a time where Jesus comes and it's all put to end forever and ever. And until then, we have hope in him. Which is what we looked at last week when we looked at Revelation chapter 1. Revelation chapter 1, if you weren't here, let me give you just a quick recap of what happened. Revelation chapter 1 is about Jesus Christ. It's about him. Over 36 times there is a statement about Jesus Christ in Revelation chapter 1. You can separate it at least that much, and that's me doing it really quick. In fact, if you really went through it, what you would realize there's only a verse and a half that don't either mention Jesus or does not refer to something Jesus says to them at that time. It's all about Jesus. The point of Revelation chapter 1 is no matter what comes up, Jesus is the answer. No matter the issue you're facing, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one this is about, is who we look forward to. We are thrilled that he would include us in his master plan, and we have the hope and longing for him because he is the one that solves all of our issues. You see, if you live in such a way towards the future and you don't know Jesus Christ and are not longing for him, you're missing the focus that God wants you to have in life. And so that's what Revelation chapter one is about. And then you have Revelation chapter two and chapter three. On the old Sesame Street show, there used to be this uh, little segment. I don't know if they still have it, but it's called, Which One of These Things is Not Like the Other? Do y'all remember that one? Where you looked at the four boxes, or maybe more if you're a little older, possibly. I don't know. They might have challenged you more. But you look at the four. There's one of those that doesn't match the rest of them. Well, that would be what we're looking at today. Because there's seven letters to seven churches. And a lot of people have taught these seven letters to seven churches in a way that I think is a little bit wrong compared to the way John has taught them. And so I want to help you see what I think John is doing, what I think God is doing through writing these letters to help you see how it fits within all the book of Revelation. And so this will be a fun one for me. I hope you enjoy it. But more importantly, I hope it sends you searching and seeking God no matter what's going on. So... These are letters. For those of you that are younger, letters are these things people used to write to one another. They used to take time. When I was at a Christian camp, 
I remember getting out of our bunk because it was letter writing time. You pulled out a pencil, you pulled out paper that you brought with you anticipating that you would write letters and you would probably write them back to your mom. A lot of times you would either air your grievances with the counselors and everything else going on or you would talk about how wonderful it is and you never want to come home so send money so you can survive. It was one of the two. And you wrote these letters and you put them in a mailbox and you sent them. And guess what? You used to be able to open a mailbox and be excited about what's inside. It wasn't bills. It wasn't necessarily always coupons and brochures and everything else. And people weren't trying to buy your house at cash for a price. You should call them. They aren't trying to buy your car. It's, it was letters written to you. And you would take those letters. You would run inside because it was addressed to you. You would open it. You would go into your room. You would close it. You would read the letter. And then you would save the letter. You put it in a shoebox or you put it in something else and hid it under your bed. Or you had what's called a junk drawer where you threw it in there. And that's where you kept it as a keepsake. And you would pull it out and remember it and read it because letters carried this weight of, oh, yes, someone cares about me. And these letters written to these churches, I think John wrote them to care about them, to care about them. I think he knew all these leaders of these churches. You see, these churches are lined in such a way they're a natural road, okay? So you would get off the island of Patmos, which John, I think, eventually does. He lives in Ephesus, but if you were to travel, he would go all the way up to Pergamum, and then he'd walk along this valley ridge into the heart of the east or the west side of what's modern-day Turkey, all the way to where it stops in Laodicea. Now, the road does not stop in Laodicea. If you kept walking along that road, you would get to more significant towns with more churches, but it stops at seven for a reason. And I believe that reason is because each of these letters are for every church in completion for all time. The number seven, as I mentioned last week, is a number of completion fulfillment. And so what you have is you have seven letters written to seven churches. Now, some people will teach that these letters are written in a panoramic view that Ephesus would cover the, the things that happened between 33 A.D. to 150 A.D., and then you come to the next town, and it would cover 300, or 150 through 300. Then you come to the next town, all the way up to the church time, because they want to make it fit within Revelation and within a timeline so that when the rapture happens, which I believe in, and might be illustrated in chapter 4, which I believe in, that it would cover the panorama of church history. However, I personally believe if he had wrote, written to Laodicea first and then went through Philippi, and, or, or, I'm sorry, yes, Philadelphia, and then on up, I think it would also fall within the coincidences that happened in life at that time. I think it would fit. Because I believe that these letters are written for all churches at all times because they are written to encourage you to respond faithfully. I think there's a more compelling reason for those letters being written other than fitting within the panorama of church history. I think they are written to help people with their faithful walk until Jesus comes again. Now, I think the word imminency in Revelation chapter one, verse one carries incredible significance. I think when John wrote this letter, which I think happened in 92 AD, I think when he wrote this letter to send it out, I think he wrote it thinking and knowing that Jesus could come back any moment from here on after. There's nothing hindering Jesus from in heaven opening up, taking the scroll from the Father and opening it up and beginning the seven years of tribulation. I don't think there was anything hindering that at that time. I believe in the imminency and the immediacy of Jesus Christ. 
I believe in the mystery of the church age. We don't know when it ends, and as Jesus says, only the Father knows. I believe in that, so therefore, I struggle a little bit with the panorama, but I think it's doing something much more significant. Many people have divided up the letters in six to seven different categories. They would say something like this. There's a description of Christ, then a commendation for the church, then a criticism of the church, then a warning, and then exhortation, and then the promise. I think it's much simpler than that. I think what's happening is this, and you can follow it all the way through. It starts with a statement about Jesus. And that statement about Jesus is a line from Revelation chapter one when it declares who Jesus is. You can trace it back, you can find it. Then it has an issue which covers a majority of the letter. That issue is a problem unless you return faithfully to that Jesus was, was described in the first line. Each letter has a different description of Jesus, but if you turn back to him for that issue, you will get to participate in the last part, the promise of God at the end. And it always ends with a promise that alleviates the issue that was described there. I think if you follow that line, Jesus, issue, promise, you will see that it actually gives a little bit of foresight to what's gonna happen in the entire book of Revelation. I think Revelation 1 through chapter 3 is all about Jesus being the answer. I think it's very clear where the issue is in Revelation. Chapter 4 through 19, the tribulation, the trials that are going on. Contrary to what you might have heard, I believe this is an incredibly gracious time by God because time is coming. Jesus is coming and you need to urgently turn to him. So why is this gracious when so many people see so horrible this is, which it is? It's because he's stripping away all those things you could turn to instead of turning to Jesus Christ. If you lean, if you lean on prosperity, he takes away prosperity. If you lean on your security, he takes away the security. If you lean on these gods, these idols, he'll take away those too. If you lean on anything at all in life, your health, he'll take away that too. Where you have to make the decision, I either choose to trust Jesus and his coming back or not. Wouldn't you want that kind of heads up in life if you were falling astray, that he would take away those things so that you could have eternal security and love with him forever? So the big part of Revelation is the issue. So Jesus is the answer, one through three. Four through 19, Jesus, or, or the issue. And then the end of 19, all the way through 22, you have the promise that you get to be a part of forever and ever and ever. And as it says in scripture, it far outweighs our problems and issues. You can read that in 2 Corinthians 4, which I highly recommend because it's in the Bible, but also because it's one of my favorite chapters in all of scripture. So let's take a look at these letters. And what you will see is that the issue that happens in these letters are either something in history that's happened to that city, it's something that's happening currently, or it's something that's anticipating the future. And that Jesus answers that issue so they can participate in the promise. The first letter, I think, is written, and it's about true faithfulness. True faithfulness. 
to the angel of the church of Ephesus. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. At the end of chapter one, it says the seven golden lampstands, those seven stars are the seven churches and its messengers or angels. And so what we know is that that's a description of the people that congregate there to worship Jesus Christ. But look at the action of Jesus right there. What does it say? He walks with and he holds them. He walks with and he holds them. So the answer to the issue going on is that they would turn back to Jesus and allow him to hold them and walk with them. They will respond different and they'll experience a victory or hopefulness within the face of this issue. So what's the issue going on? Let me describe it to you quickly. Ephesus was one of the gateways into all of Asia. It was a place, it was a border town and you would walk in after you uh, parked your ship and you would be able to head into all of Asia. So it, it greeted you there. There was a huge temple of Diana, numerous pillars. It was 420 feet long, uh, 220 feet wide, 60 feet high, 127 marble pillars, had gold. It was gorgeous. It was beautiful. Many people went and worshiped Diana there and that's who they turned to. Um, in fact, it was in such hostility to not worship Diana that they would actually cause ruckus in the book of Acts by getting on to Paul. Because Paul was walking around in Ephesus and he planted a church there. He was there for three years. And, and when he planted a church there, uh, the Holy Spirit was moving him in such a way that if even his handkerchief touched someone that was either hurt or had demon or something like that, they would be healed. And they turned, they listened to what uh, Paul had to say. And many people believed. In fact, there's this huge scene of them burning their books of magical arts and other things like that that's there because there was some hostility towards Paul at this time and they wanted him to leave because of what he was causing. He was ruining their economy. But what's described in this letter is, is a little bit different. That's the history. It says this, I know your deeds, your hard work, your perseverance, I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people, that you tested those who came, claimed to be apostles but are not, and have found them false. You have persevered and endured hardship for my name and have not grown weary. Yet, I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love you had at the first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But if you have this in your favor, you have the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. You see, these people were acting in what I would consider self-righteousness. They instead of walking and having faithfulness with Jesus Christ, instead of allowing him to hold them and trusting on him for the response for everything that was going on, they acted with hostility. And they walked away from the love that they'd been called to to follow Jesus Christ. Instead, they acted upon their own self-righteousness. It was uncomfortable for them to be around others that would follow other religions. They didn't want to interact with them, so they would be hostile to them. In fact, there's this one description of someone called Nicolaitans, or the people of Nicolaitans. A lot of people think that refers back to Acts 6, where there's this deacon named Nicholas, and maybe his teachings followed in. But what we know about the word Nicolaitans is that Nicholas, Laos, actually means people, and Nicola was actually a goddess of warfare. And so these people, in their description, were violent towards anybody that would strip away their newfound freedom that they could sin all the more. It's probably in response to some of what uh, Paul was writing in Romans, in Romans 6, when he says, 
well, shall we go on sinning so that his grace may increase? He's like, no, by no means. Well, there was, seems to be there were people there that if you rebuked them or showed them in the word how they were following unfaithfully, they would say, well, you aren't responding faithfully to the freedom that we have in Jesus, and they would attack you. And so there's a lot of hostility in Ephesus. So it caused a lot of responses out of frustration, out of self-righteousness, out of seeing themselves as better than others. And it probably caused a lot of verbal abuse amongst them. But what John is calling them back to, and what God is calling back to, is if you turn to Jesus, you allow him to hold you, you allow him to guide you, you'll respond in peacefulness, which will look vastly different than everything else. And then it goes on to share the promise. You know what the promise is? Whoever has ears, let them hear. What the Spirit says to the churches, to the one who is victorious, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is paradise with God. You get to participate in paradise forever, peacefulness, if you would just reflect him and walk in peace. So it's causing them to have true faithfulness. You might have needed to hear that today. You might have created a hostile work environment because you're trying to protect your Christianity and your faith. You might have lashed out at other people that really need your patience and they need to see peacefulness because all they experience is hostility. Maybe you needed to hear that letter today. Let's move on to the second letter. The church in Smyrna. To the angel of the church in Smyrna, these are the words of him who is first and last and who died and came to life. The emphasis is on Jesus' resurrection. And so it's this, the true gospel or the true resurrection, the true hope we have is this section. It's a hopeful expe expectation. It's like a diet. You know, you know it's going to be tough right now, but one day you're going to be able to wear the clothes you want to wear if you follow faithfully, right? And so that idea that you would have that true hopefulness in the resurrection. You know, Smyrna was actually destroyed for 400 years and then actually was rebuilt 400 years later. It experienced the uh, personal resurrection in its own city. And so I think when John brings this up here, he might even be referring back to, you know your history. You know how resurrection brings new life. Lean to that and have trust in that. Um, you see, they're anticipating what's called persecution as their issue. They're anticipating what's also known as hostility towards Christians. And so this is the way it's described in the church of Smyrna. I know of your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slender of those who say they are Jews and are not, but a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful even to the point of death, and I'll give you life as your victor's crowned. There's a story of a man named Polycarp who actually is from Smyrna. He's a great church father. He probably knew John or was connected to John in some sort of way. And Polycarp, during his life, he, 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 the hostility in this town grew so much that many of the Christians were uh, punished, put to death. They were also imprisoned, but they didn't want to imprison Polycarp because they didn't want him to be a martyr. But finally, the Jews in that town were so upset with him preaching Jesus Christ that they, they complained to him to the Romans. They put him in the middle of the, um, 
of the arena and they had a trial in front of everyone. And they said to him, listen, we have wild beasts. We don't want to release the wild beasts to eat you like the lions and that sort of thing. If you'll just renounce Jesus Christ. And Polycarp said, no. And they said, well, then we're going to burn you at the stake if you don't recant Jesus Christ. And he said, okay. He said, you know, my death will last about an hour, but you're going to be burning forever if you do that. And so they said, okay, we're going to actually nail your hands to the post so you can't move. He said, I won't move. You don't have to nail my hands. And sure enough, he died at the stake that day, experiencing persecution. This letter was written as an encouragement to them. Yes, hostility will come. But stay true to the gospel because even if you suffer death, Jesus is the ever-living and the one who raised from the dead. So turn to him. And then it promises you something. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be heard at all by the second death. We have a lot of missionaries here that don't experience the goodness of what freedom in Dallas allows us with our uh, Christian worship. Uh, many of them are serving people that are facing persecution. Celeste Musicara, who we just prayed for. We just prayed for someone that's facing persecution because of their faith. And we need to take seriously the fact that Jesus isn't welcome everywhere. And in fact, in such a way that sometimes they experience persecution as well. And we're called to pray for them and their faithfulness, that they would also depend on the resurrected Jesus. Many of us are experiencing some hostility in our life and might not feel free to really worship God wherever you might be. Take assurance that Jesus is the one that will fix all things and you get to be resurrected with him without any hurt, pain, or sickness in the future. Next letter. Pergamum. The most fun name to say in all the letters. Pergamum. You know, Pergamum was an interesting city. Uh, Pergamum was the Morrison's Cafe buffet line or uh, um, what's one of those other ones? Golden Corral buffet line. You could go in, you could worship any gods you want. You want a little bit of this? Oh, I don't want this today. I'm gonna make sure I save a lot of room for the Jello god. You just got to pick whichever god you wanted to worship. It became an all-encompassing, whatever you want, just make God whoever you want him to be and follow him. And so they had, actually they had uh, these pagan cults there, and they had temples built to Zeus, Athena, Dionysius, Asclepius. Asclepius is one that you have to know about. Asclepius is actually in the form of a serpent, and it was on a stake. In fact, it probably is modeled after what happened in Numbers 15, where um, Moses put a, uh, or they put a serpent on a staff so that people that were bitten by a snake in the wilderness could turn to it and be healed. If you're not aware of that story, it's in the Bible. It's amazing. But what they use that for is, since it healed those people in the Old Testament, they would use that as a symbol for medical care. Many people think Dr. Luke, who wrote Luke and wrote Acts, got his studies done in Pergamum. Because there's a library there with over 200,000 books, the largest in the area. And so it became a cultural place that really worshipped intellect and pursuing God as you felt. So, a God like Jesus probably wasn't welcome because he's the one true God and you couldn't worship others. It says this about Jesus. These are the words of him who has the sharp double-edged sword. You see, this one's about true worship. 
The sharp double-edged sword in Hebrews 4 actually says that it, it doesn't just separate bone and, uh, and flesh like it does in the Old Testament for worship in the temple. In Hebrews 4, it separates bone and flesh from spirit so God can truly see you, so you can worship him with your whole heart, with your whole life. The issue going on here was they were confused about their worship. And if you would turn to Jesus, who's the true one to worship, you would get to participate in the promise. The promise at the end, take a look at it. Verse 17, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. The manna that's there, I think, is there for significance of worship. It was the provision that God provided people that were in the wilderness. And it was actually placed inside the Ark of the Covenant to remind people, and so that when they worship God, they remember his provision. And then you have the stone that's white that has your name written on it. Um, at that time, many people voted on things by either placing the black stone or a white stone in a bag so that they could do it. And it was, it was um, anonymous. That's why it was a white stone or a black stone. However, if you had your name written on it, it was not anonymous, was it? And you're given a stone, a white stone, where Jesus says, yes, I will accept you with your name personally written on it. There's, there's, a, there's a significance there that your worship will result in Jesus saying, you are with me forever. And it gives them true worship instead of religious confusion. If we live in a world right now that I could describe as religious confusion, even in the Christian church, they're making Jesus out and God out to be whoever you want him to be, to the point where you can't tell the difference between opinion, doctrine, and even the way they use scripture. And outside of the church, there's so many religions that invite others and say, no, it's actually the same God. You can just get to him different ways through different religions, which you might have heard and might even believe, but I promise you this. There is no name under heaven which you can be saved except for Jesus Christ. And I didn't say that. Jesus said that. So I repeated it. Maybe you need to hear that there is true worship and you don't have to be seeking. You can just be faithful and respond to him. The next section. Thyatira. Thyatira. This is not a significant town. It's not as large as the other towns on this list. If there were such thing as a Bucky's in Asia, they would have put it in Thyatira because it's on the way to somewhere else. And if you go to Bucky's, you recognize there's a lot of options, are there not? You can go get beef jerky, you can go get ice cream, you can go get bag stuff, you can get Bucky's nuts. I don't even know what those are. I'm scared of them. I'm sure they're great, and some of you might be devoted fans to them, but I don't know about Bucky's nuts. But what I do know is that you can get anything, and I promise you this, there are so many bathrooms there, you're gonna get a clean one, and that is incredibly important when you're on a road trip like you would be if you went through Thyatira. I actually heard an amen to the bathroom thing. But Thyatira is kind of the same as a Bucky's. Inside Thyatira, it became a place for commerce. It was an industrial park. They had people that had, they were bronze and they were tanning. They had people that dyed cloth. They made things. You could pick up trinkets. You could pick up little idols on the way as you were going along for traveling mercies and that sort of thing. In fact, those idols were set up so that you could stop in. You could offer a sacrifice very quickly before you get on your way so that you have traveling mercies and God would take care of you. 
And so there became this little bit of a cult issue in there where people said, you know what, we can control the marketplace because a lot of goods are being bought here. So you have to allow us to be who we want to be and come join us in worship of all the other gods, eating all their foods. So if you happen to be a Christian at that time, you didn't want to be associated with those things. They would actually make it to where you could not sell stuff. So you had to compromise your faith. You had to compromise your actions to be able to survive as a businessman in Thyatira. It was an issue. It was an issue at this time. The answer to Thyatira is in Jesus Christ, who's described as this. To the angel of the church of Thyatira, these are the words of the Son of God, whose eyes are like a blazing fire, whose feet are like the burnished bronze. The burnished bronze signifies justice. And this is about, this section is about true justice. Jesus is the one that will bring about justice. And not only is he solid foundation that you cannot move as if burnished bronze, but he also has fire like eyes in there. He sees all that's going on and it will not be swept under the rug or put behind. He will make all things revealed so that he can respond to it the right way. And what's promised at the end? I will give authority over the nations that anyone will rule them with an iron scepter and dash them to pieces like pottery, just as I have received authority from my father. I will also give that one the morning star. Whoever has ears, let them hear. Jesus will bring about justice in the end. And you don't have to worry about whether or not someone is unjust to you. He's the one. What about Sardis, the next church? The church of Sardis, this is about true assurance, true assurance. To the angel of the church of Sardis, these are the words of him who holds the seven stars and of God and the seven stars. You see, this one right here is, it holds the seven spirits and of God who holds the seven stars. There is assurance there. He holds you. He does not let go. He gives you assurance there. Sardis in its history, and here's the issue that happens at this time in Sardis. Sardis in its history was actually this city that was built on a plateau, all right? And it was a steep plateau. And on that plateau, they built a fort. And if someone came and attacked, they would go into the fort and no one could attack them. It's only been conquered twice in history. Antiochus did it, but earlier than that, a guy named Cyrus, actually from the Medo-Persian area when the Persians came across. And he couldn't attack it. He couldn't defeat it. And so he issued his guards, he said, listen, or his soldiers, he said, listen, if anybody figures out how to get into that city, I will give you riches beyond measure. And so as they're sitting outside and they're watching, they actually see they only have a few guards up there. And one of the guards' helmet falls off. And the guard goes through the secret passageway, goes down this path, down this hill, picks up his helmet and walks back up. The soldier saw the way he went and waited until nighttime. He told everybody. The whole army came up there. And when they came up there, there was nobody guarding the city. And they just took it over in the middle of the night. In this letter, it says, wake up, O sleeper. Because why? Because they had their assurance in the wrong thing. They built their life in such a way that they think they're gonna be fine. But wake up, the only assurance you have is in Jesus Christ. And that Jesus Christ is the one that holds the seven spirits and the seven stars. And what does he promise? At the end, he promises this. I will never blot out the name of the person from the book of life, but will acknowledge the name before my father and his angels. Whoever has the ears, let him hear. There's two more letters and I'm gonna briefly go over them because I have something at the end I wanna share with you. 
You have a church in Philadelphia. This church in Philadelphia, uh, Jesus is described as holy and true and holds the keys of heaven. And whatever you hold stays open and does not close. The issue going on in Philadelphia is that it was an incredibly uh, unstable town because there were so many violent earthquakes to the point where people just quit building houses there and they lived in tents around. They had no stability. They had no assurance of their life. And so Jesus is the one that provides them stability. And that's why in the end, he promises to build pillars that will last forever that you can go and worship God forever. And that's what's promised in the end. And then you have Laodicea. Laodicea is a famous one. Many of you probably know about the, the water that's so lukewarm that, Jesus, that God will just spew them out of their mouth. But Laodicea has much more significant uh, history. Um, they were incredibly wealthy. They, they, a lot of people bought goods from them. And so when their city actually was destroyed by the same earthquakes and the natural disaster, they didn't need Rome. They didn't need anyone else to help build them up. They built it up themselves. That was their history. And so Laodicea had true, they, they, they had sufficiency in themselves. They depended on themselves, which made them live a very lackluster, very, uh, a life that was, you know, didn't really have any urgency to it. They were fine just the way they are. They were content, but not in God, in themselves and what they were able to do. You see, they were hit by an earthquake once and they weren't able to stand and they thought that they could pay for it, but actually they end up getting conquered later on. But Jesus, the answer is described as faithful and true witness and ruler of God's creation. He's sovereign, he's over all things. And he promises to give them a place to sit in eternal life forever and ever. You know, as I read through these letters, I realized there's so much about Jesus that's true, that's good for all of us, that we should turn to. And I don't know which of those letters or which of those statements about Jesus you needed to hear today that gives you faithfulness, that gives you strength, that causes you to say, you know what, I have a little bit of that heart I need, in my heart, I need to turn back to Jesus. I don't know which one of those it is. But it made me ask the question as I was studying this, as I was reading through it, what would the letter look like if... John wrote one to Grace Bible Church in Dallas, Texas today. I gave it a shot. I think it would look similar to this. I've been a part of this church for a little over six years now. I feel like I've gotten to know many of you, and I'm grateful to be here. There's a lot that I'm proud of the way God's using it. But I also know the culture of this area, and I know the culture of this church too. These letters were meant to be a gut punch, to shock you back to turn to Jesus. So here is our letter. To the angel of Grace Bible Church in Dallas. These are the words of him whose voice is like the sound of rushing water. Why did I choose the sound of rushing water from chapter one? Because it's unmistakable, it's clear, it's loud. Sometimes we need to hear that Jesus is our answer. Shock you back into an urgency to follow after him faithfully. We need that, right? And then it goes on to say this, I've heard of your stewardship and your love for others beyond those who gather regularly with you. I've heard of your devotion to teach the scriptures and to hold on to the truth. You have graciously given of your time, your resources, and your facilities. You strive to hold on to tradition while moving forward cautiously. Some of the things I'm most proud of about how God is using Grace Bible Church are in that small paragraph right there. I'm not sure if you realize this, but two other church congregations meet here at Grace Bible Church. 
Three different sections of young life meet here, including the young lives. We have AA that meets here. We graciously give of our facility. Nearly 20%, sometimes more, we give away to organizations outside of Grace Bible Church because we care about the name of Jesus Christ being declared regardless if we get credit for it or not. And these are significant gifts that really are answers to prayers that they've had as they followed faithfully after Jesus. And I'm grateful for that. And you've made that a possibility for us to be able to worship God in that way. But many of you are too concerned about your preferences instead of Jesus' message. Many of you are too individualistic in your worship without urgency for the truth of the gospel. You spend time taking comfortable steps within your ability instead of seeking the faithful path. Your lack of conviction in your daily life is seen as evidence by unbelievers that God may not be real. Take bold steps of faith. And know God has called you to reflect him with your full life and not just a part. Whoever has ears, let him hear. To the ones who are faithful, you will enjoy the comfort and fulfillment of the Lord forever as you walk without fear forever and ever and ever. If that letter has touched you at all or rung true to you like it rings true to me, I encourage you to listen to the voice of the rushing water, Jesus Christ, as he's calling you to follow him faithfully with your life and worship him with your whole life and every action, not just a part. I think people expect us to do it with just a part. Let's be unexpected. Let's pray. God, we're grateful that you would write us letters through these seven churches that you would care about our faithfulness until you come again. That you would care about our worship, our assurance, the sufficiency we have in you. You would care about our lives as we walk faithfully. And Lord, I pray that we as a church reflect you in all of our actions, in all of our words, in all of our worship, and in all of our love as we interact with others. It's by your son's name we pray. Amen.